I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. All right, before we get into our main feature, as this episode is releasing, FumFest is this weekend. One final push for FumFest. It's time for Chicago's annual funny music convention, FumpFest. This year, we're celebrating Dr. Demento's 50th anniversary with special guest, radio legend Dr. Demento, appearing live and in person. Dr. Demento will be presenting his Festival of Dementia, signing autographs, and hosting the 11th annual Logan Whitehurst Memorial Awards for Excellence in Comedy Music. FumpFest is taking place August 20th through 22nd at the Western North Shore in Wheeling, Illinois, and will feature performances by Bill Larkin, Carla Albright, Steve Goody, Bad Beth and Beyond, The Gothsicles, Ross Child, The Great Luke Ski, Worm Quartet, Insane Ian, Nuclear Bubble Rat, Harry Dalby, Ian Lockwood, and a special appearance by Sulu from the Dr. Demento Show, plus Demented Karaoke, Dumb Parody Ideas, The Fump Showcase, and more. Visit FumpFest.com to register and book your hotel room. That's F-U-M-P-F-E-S-T dot com. Very, very happy to be celebrating Dr. Demento's 50th anniversary. If it wasn't for Dr. Demento, this podcast would not exist. Very, very true. The podcast is about Disney, but the podcast exists solely because of Dr. Demento. Because Dr. Demento discovered Weird Al Yankovic. Me and Kiki became friends because of a mutual love of Weird Al Yankovic. That's it. This podcast would not exist. Me and Kiki would not know each other. Weird Al would have still been an architect. Yep. Thank you, Dr. Demento. Uh, uh, so, yeah, if you're if you're in the Chicago area this weekend, come join us. We will be there. Dr. Demento will be there. What more do you need? Yep. Uh, just a quick programming note. Uh, this happens to be the uh, one point in the day in Georgia right now where it is not raining. Georgia in the summer, don't you love it? So if you hear the lawnmowers out, that's why. Uh, Uh, Moving on. We have a fun movie for you this week. Yeah, The Great Mouse Detective. And uh, we are not alone for this one. No. Will our mystery guest enter and sign in, please? Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Heather Holloway. I am um, a longtime friend of Kiki and also uh, co-founder and director of 221 Beacon, a Sherlock Holmes fan convention. So I assume that's why I was asked to be on this particular podcast. Yeah, Heather is my friend what knows all about the Sherlock Holmes. And uh, this is really the closest we've ever come to talking about Sherlock Holmes on the show. And I thought Heather would be a fun addition to this one. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes with mice. Uh, this is a film that has been uh, kind of in development with Disney for a while. In fact, so when working on The Rescuers, someone at Disney decided, let's do a Sherlock Holmes movie. 
and they were brought to the attention of a children's book series called Basil of Baker Street by Eve Titus. And, well, since they were already doing a movie about mice rescuing people, uh, they kind of put this to the side, and it's a little too similar to what we're doing. Years later, uh, The Black Cauldron wasn't doing too well production-wise, so uh, at the time, CEO Ron Miller approved of Basil of Baker Street as a backup in case things go south with Cauldron. Uh, it did not. Cauldron happened. Um, it did not do so well. Uh, if you want to go back to our episode on the Black Cauldron, you can get our thoughts on it. But during that, the guard changed. Michael Eisner gets brought in. And this is the first animated movie that he was pitched. We have to pay these people regardless, so just let them make the movie. But... <laughs> um. Because Cauldron did not do very well, the budget of this movie was cut in half, and all of the animation crew was moved to a smaller building out, off of Disney property. Uh, we talked about that in uh, our Waking Sleeping Beauty episode from a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, the original plan was to release this in Christmas 1987. Eisner cut the production by a year and a half because he wanted this out by summer of 1986, leaving the crew with less than a year to make the movie on half the budget that they're used to. But, and as we've discussed many times on this show, that's always a good move. Yeah, <laughs> but they made the film. It did well. It performed amazingly well, enough to... Uh, be because of Cauldron's failure, the animation division was in danger of getting cut completely. And it was the success of Great Mouse Detective that this that animation stayed. So they got a new animation building, all this stuff, and we end up getting the Disney Renaissance and everything is history. The only downfall of this was uh, Great Mouse Detective was completely outperformed by an American tale by former Disney animator Don Bluth. It was a good time for mice. <laughs> it was a good time for mice, yes. <laughs> Are any of you familiar with the Basil of Baker Street books? Uh, I've, I've read one of them. <laughs> one of them? Yes. And it was a long time ago. They're good, they're cute. If you have children, which I don't and never will, um, if you do, I would get them for them because they're adorable. Um, I wouldn't really recommend you guys running out and grabbing them unless you're really into Sherlock Holmes and want to, you know, add it to your repertoire. Um, but I don't, it's, this was a new story as far as I remember. I don't remember this being the story of the books, but I did read them a long time ago when I was a child. So, yeah, I could be more familiar. Sorry. So, yeah, at the time the film was created, there was only five books in the series uh, by original author Eve Titus. Uh, okay, the first five were Basil of Baker Street, Basil in the Cave of Cats, Basil in Mexico, Basil in the Wild Wild West, and Basil in the Lost Colony. In 2018, three new books were added to the collection, Basil and the Big Cheese Cook-Off, Basil and the Royal Dare, and the most recent, Basil and the Library Ghost. So if you have kids and you want to introduce them to Sherlock Holmes, eh, why not? Or you can just do what um, I did as a child and just read freaking Sherlock Holmes as a child. 
because yeah. that's a thing children can do. I guess many I, people I pick them up as a, children. Yeah, I don't I don't know how that's a did you read them as, as a child, Heather? I actually read my first Sherlock Holmes story in ninth grade. I I think I read them a, a bit younger than that, honestly. I think I read my first Sherlock Holmes story. Oh my goodness. Um six, sixth sixth or seventh, maybe, I think was the first time I picked one up. Yeah, I mean if a child goes, I want to read a Sherlock Holmes story, it's perfectly fine to go, here, kid, if you're old enough to ask about one, read one. But a lot of people are like, oh, you're you're too young for that. I really, I dislike people trying to dumb things down for children. If a child is smart enough to know what Sherlock Holmes is... I think a child is smart enough to try Sherlock Holmes. See, speaking of dumbing things down for kids, <laughs> in 1985, Paramount released Young Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, they did. And it didn't do so well, which but made it my, that movie is gold. Which made <laughs> yeah. Eisner really, really nervous about the upcoming movie and changed the name of Basil of Baker Street to The Great the Mouse great Detective. Which really upset a lot of the animators, since they did not have any power to uh, counteract that decision. Uh, they, one animator sent out an infamous memo to the rest of the studio saying we are renaming all of our classic movies to go along <laughs> with The Great Mouse Detective. I've read that memo. Seven Little Men Help a Girl, The Wonderful Elephant Who Could Really Fly, The Little Deer Who Grew Up, The Girl with the See-Through Shoes, Two Dogs Fall in Love, Puppies Taken Away. So, could I give, like, the Sherlockian perspective of calling it the Great Mouse Detective? Go for it. Okay, so, I don't know if a lot of people know, but, like, Sherlockiana is, like, a weird subculture of, of people. Like, um, it's worldwide. We have meetings. We we celebrate Sherlock Holmes's birthday in New York every single year with half a week of uh, of different events, and then uh, another week in January we go to London and do it there for the then it's uh, the Baker Street Irregulars or the New York based group who do it. It's an invitation only Sherlock Holmes Society. Uh, people like Neil Gaiman are in it. We have constant meetings. Like every state pretty much has their own little group. Georgia has ours. It's called the Wisteria Lodge. So it's a it's a larger subculture. And we genuinely didn't have a problem with it being called the Great Mouse Detective because colloquially we call Sherlock Holmes the Great Detective, capital G, capital D. So it made perfect sense to us as Sherlockians that it would be called the Great Mouse Detective because Sherlock Holmes is the Great Detective. Uh, have I have I have I mentioned to you before Tuesday that my original pitch for um for my master's thesis was about the Sherlock Holmes canon, and the reaction from my literature department was, well, you're gonna have trouble finding somebody to direct that because I don't think we have anybody that skews that modern. So that angered me so much that I wrote it about two then living authors, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. <laughs> so 
I actually also just, not as a matter of Sherlock, but as a matter of audience and filmmaking, I like the change from Basil of Baker Street to Great Mouse Detective, because people who are very into Sherlock would have seen Basil of Baker Street and gone, I understand what this movie is, but I think the average American moviegoer would have gone, Basil of Baker Street, I want to go see the film about a mouse who cooks, and that's Ratatouille, and they wouldn't make that movie for a very long time. And it is, I mean, they were making a movie for like four, five, six, seven-year-olds to want to see, and it is a more exciting title than Basil of Baker Street. This tells me what the movie is going to be about. It's going to be about a mouse who's a detective. And he's That's what I need to know. And and he's good at his job. That tells me everything I need to know. Then I see the trailer and I see him wearing the little deerstalker cap and I see it set in London and I go, oh, it's a mouse that's Sherlock Holmes. I get this now. So I, I am with Eisner on this one thing. It needed a name change. Okay, fine. For a movie that still is using the Xerox method, it's not that bad. You know what? I honestly don't think they were Xeroxing this one. The next movie after this is Oliver and Tom. Oh, so this would have been right in the Xerox era. Mm-hmm. This does not at all look Xeroxed. Like I said, I watch these things on a UHD television. This thing looks amazing in UHD. Um, the the backgrounds of London, especially in the final kind of blimp chase there, um, they are just gorgeous. It kind of goes back to the earlier, um, you know, kind of watercolor background looking thing. It does not look like the animation we had been seeing from the other films of this era. It almost looks like a completely different animation team. And so I don't know is... what was going on, but of all the movies we've discussed in this particular era, this one is the one I say looks best. And the fact that they did this on a on half the budget that they were used to. Yeah, the fact that they sped it up and they uh, cut the time down, it did not harm the animation at all. This thing looks clean and crisp and beautiful. Bravo. And since this is the first movie after... Uh, after Cauldron, this is the second Disney movie to have CG in it. Yeah, um, can't really tell much. It really blends in. Some of the movies with the early um computer effects, it's like, oh, look, computer effect coming through, stomping its way through. But uh, no, this one really blends in beautifully. So... Let's talk about the cast they got for this one, because we got a couple of fun people. You want to start with the the big, bad, wonderful draw for this film? The legendary Vincent Price is our villain, Professor Rattigan. Yeah, this is our Moriarty for the film. And he is excellent. Can we say enough about Vincent Price? Because I don't think we can. Not not at the time we're going to have to do this. Yeah. I mean, he was a dang national treasure. Vincent Price is an entire different podcast I could start. (laughs) I mean, it's just, 
Let's talk about Vincent Price, the podcast is another right? project. Let's talk about his cookbook. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it's Just Vincent, Vincent Price. The Vincent Price cookbook podcast is an even more different project I could start. Uh, um, uh, this isn't even the only Disney project he did because he would go on to uh, be the the ghost host, as it were, for Disneyland Paris's Mystic Manor, their version of the Honda Mansion. Where hinges creak in doorless chambers, where strange and frightening sounds echo through the halls, where candlelights flicker though the air is deathly still, this is Phantom Manor. Oh, I did not know that. He is the horror legend, the greatest villain in all history, probably. And in his performance in this movie, you can tell he's having fun. Oh, he's chewing scenery left and right. He listed this as one of his favorite performances of his entire career. And he gets to sing in this movie. Twice. Yes. This is not a musical, but he got to sing. If Vincent Price wants to sing in your movie, you let him sing in your movie. Yeah, there are only three songs in the movie, and he does two of them. He does two of them. I don't know why Radigan's song does not get listed as one of the great villain songs. Oh, the yeah, world's greatest is. criminal mind. I don't yeah. know why this is not up there in the list of Disney's greatest villain songs, but it should be. It should be. It is so well performed. Um, And also, he does Goodbye So Soon, which is almost criminally misused in the film because it plays in the background while people talk over it. That's why I'm glad they did eventually release the soundtrack so you can hear that song in its entirety. Yeah, and Vincent Price gives his all to that song even though it's talked over in the film. So bravo to him on just, you know, leaving it all out there. He easily could have phoned this in and he chose not to for us. Oh, bless Vincent Price. Playing opposite Vincent Price, <laughs> uh, we have the great mouse detective himself, Basil, Barry Ingham. Yeah, I don't know much about Barry Ingham. I'm sorry. Bar- Barry Ingham is the great mouse detective and um, n- not much else. Uh, he did a lot of um, theater. He was mainly a theater actor. And his final kind of theater outing was Jekyll and Hyde. Hmm. The Broadway musical Jekyll and Hyde. Okay. Interestingly though, for those of us of the geek persuasion, he was in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, really? Who did he play? He was in Up the Long Ladder, which is about that group of like uh Irish people who don't like technology. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know which one you're talking about. O'Brien makes them actual whiskey out of the replicator or whatever. He's the leader of those people. Okay. All right. I can see that now. So he's best known for Basil of Baker Street and the guy who wanted real whiskey on the Enterprise. (laughs) God bless him. Yeah, I mean... You know, it's more than I'll be remembered for, so... I mean, if he, did Jekyll and, if he did Jekyll and Hyde the musical, then it's a crime that Basil never sang a song in this movie. Uh, he he did a lot of, like, Andrew Lloyd Webber and stuff. I mean, he was... He took over for Richard Harris in Camelot. 
So, I mean, he was a musical theater actor. They just didn't use it. This should have probably been a musical, to be honest. Um, And then, of course, we have to have our Watson, and our Watson uh, is called Dawson. And he's given to us by uh, Val Benton, um, who is, interestingly, uh, not only in this uh, film, but he comes back into Disney taking over for Douglas Seal as the Sultan in the uh, Aladdin sequels. Yes. Return of Jafar and Aladdin and the King of Thieves. Probably and the, the cartoon. Yeah. And the, yeah. yeah. Um, interestingly, he was also in the uh, 80s film Somewhere in Time. Also shows up in uh, the Gargoyles, the Mighty Ducks uh, animated series. A Disney afternoon regular, you would say. Uh, yeah. And as the uh, evil sidekick, we have uh, Fidget, the bat with the crippled wing and his peg leg, who works for Radigan. My and favorite he was, character. He was voiced by Candy Candido, who was a, uh, a radio performer who also did uh, a lot of... Um, voice acting and and other stuff a lot of Um, his characters have that same smoker's voice as i would call it i mean yeah but a lot of times it's just him he was the tree in the wizard of oz he mm -hmm. was like every single bear and the crocodile in any disney movie ever like he's pretty i mean he's been in a lot of things yeah he was um the voice of the indian chief in peter pan yes uh, he's one of Maleficent's goons in Sleeping Beauty. He mm-hmm. is um, the crocodile who is the captain of the guard in Robin Hood. He appears in the Haunted Mansion attraction as the deep voice prisoner. And they're all the same voice. He, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty much the, the same voice. Uh, I think Christopher Walken said it best. As long as somebody thinks to themselves... Get me a Christopher Walken type. I'm the best Christopher Walken they can find. You know, so it's like, even if you've got one trick, as long as somebody needs that one trick, you're the guy they're going to call. Also, interestingly, Fidget is arguably based on a canonical character. Um, There are five characters in the movie that are definitely based on canonical characters. And you could argue that Fidget is, though I don't really buy it. (laughs) <laughs> i was i was gonna ask is there is there a a a holmes character that fidget would represent uh so i know that some people have said that he he is sebastian moran who was basically in one story like um professor moriarty's right hand man but he's actually uh way more cunning and cruel and um smart than fidget and then I would argue, just to me, that if he's anybody, he's Jonathan Small from The Sign of Four who had a peg leg. Mm. He's the bad guy from The Sign of Four and he had a peg leg. But even that would be arguable. Well, there's five characters that you can't really argue. There's there's Basil, who's Sherlock. Dawson, who's Watson. Radigan, who's Moriarty. Mrs. Judson, who's Mrs. Hudson. And then Toby the dog is actually Toby the dog in canon. <laughs> yeah. 
He's just, okay. he's the only one to one. Like, yes, there's a Toby the dog in canon. There's a Toby the dog in the Great Mouse Detective. Yeah. Um, we do have a couple of voice actors who uh, are Disney regulars who we talk about all the time. Uh, Wayne Allwine, who we talk about all the time. Uh, one of the voices of Mickey Mouse shows up as uh, random goat, voices yeah. in, in the background. Um, we have uh, Alan Tony Young. And yeah, Tony and uh, Anselmo, who the voice of Donald Duck, also in here. Oh, oh yeah, Tony Anselmo. Uh, that's right. Uh, Alan Young uh, plays uh, Flavisham, the toy maker. Uh, everybody knows him. He's Scrooge McDuck. Same voice. <laughs> Same voice. Uh, you need a Scottish guy, you call Alan Young. Um, we, of course, uh, have the wonderful, everybody's there together, Frank Frank he is your childhood. Worship him. Uh, he does all the animal voices because that's what Frank Welker does. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, we get an interesting uh, little cameo by Basil Rathbone himself. 20 years after he died. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, they, they used a recording of him for the Sherlock in the uh, above uh, Basil. I observe that there is a good deal of German music on the program which is rather more to my taste than Italian or French. It is introspective, and I want to introspect. Of course, uh, Basil Rathbone, the namesake of Basil of Baker Street. Yeah. Yes, many people's favorite Sherlock Holmes is Basil Rathbone. Not mine, but many, many people. And then uh, we've got one voice who shows up simply for a song. Uh, they had to work in some kind of... Uh, pop star because uh, Eisner wanted it. Yeah, so Eisner <laughs> looked at the bar scene for this movie and said that it should have a song because it's a bar and why not have a performance in it. Eisner wanted Madonna to voice this singer. Classy. And because Madonna really was already under contract with Disney because she was doing uh, Dick Tracy. The other person that uh, Eisner suggested was Michael Jackson, because he was already doing Captain EO. Uh, the animation team rejected both of these. Fortunately. I mean, Michael Jackson and Vincent Price in a project together, that'll never work. No. Uh, <laughs> nobody will ever buy that. Never. Um, who they got instead was Melissa Manchester. And if you were alive in the 80s and 90s, and you ever listened to adult contemporary, boy, do you know Melissa Manchester. Melissa Manchester haunts my dreams. Mostly because we talked about this before. I grew up in a household that loved the Olympics. And I loved ice skating. And my mother loved romance movies. And if you liked ice skating and you liked romance movies, you liked ice castles. And Melissa Manchester sang the theme to ice castles. Through the eyes of love. So, yeah, they hired Melissa Manchester to be Kitty Mouse, Miss Kitty, 
And she wrote and sings the song, Let Me Be Good to You. Which is not maybe a song that should be in a kid's movie. Yes, it is gay. This is, um, for any of you who have ever seen the, uh, the Broadway show Avenue Q, this is Let Me Make You Feel Special, but in a kid's movie. This is many people's furry awakening. Yeah, we we Disney. We've is... talked about Robin Hood, but this movie probably. If you missed Robin Hood, this yeah, is, this is the one. It fits right there between Robin Hood and a Goofy movie in terms of your furry awakening. That's fair. What was that? I would say Space Jam. The amount of people I've seen uh, with uh, Roxanne as their furry awakening. I don't know. I had never thought of a Goofy movie, but yeah, okay, all right, all right, I'll buy it. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about how they work the the plot into this. Um, the plot is really just a uh, Moriarty steals, well, kidnaps a toy maker, and his daughter goes to Basil. But she gets lost and Dawson finds her and helps her get to Basil and gets sucked into all the, the drama. Yeah, and the the movie starts straight up London, 1897. <laughs> like, there, there's no intros, there's no credits. That's the first thing you see in this movie. And I said for it, Disney doing a cold open is just weird. Yeah. But here's what I what I want to know is what kind of war are the mice having in Afghanistan? Right? I, I was wondering the same thing. I'm like, so I get that that the little mouse empire mirrors the the British empire, but like is there a little mouse empire in Afghanistan? And they're like, oh, well, the humans are going to war. Clearly, we must go to war as well. I just, I don't know. I, I wonder. Mean, if just to mirror Watson, yes, but I, uh, I have no idea why are mice going to war in Afghanistan. I mean, why do people go to war in Afghanistan? So, I mean, we knows? can make that, we, we can answer that, but, you know, it's getting a little <laughs> too far for this podcast. That's what I'm saying. I mean, we don't know anything about mouse, the larger mouse politic. I mean, it's it's not like, you know, it's like, do they need the, the oil that the mouse empire is sitting on in Afghanistan? Like, <laughs> Maybe. I, Maybe. I don't know exactly how this works. Well, they, imply, um, they imply that the queen, that the mouse queen is, in fact, the queen of all mice. So maybe the Afghan mice were against that and the queen had to teach them a lesson. I mean, I I don't agree with imperialist mice either. So I mean, fair on Afghan, on Afghanistan yeah. mice, I guess. But it's like, does each species have their own like ruler? I like, see, is there I, a queen of cats and a queen of dogs, or like, does well, I, the dogs and the cats weren't weren't like sentient? They were just pets. Like, Felicia and Toby clearly weren't, like, you know, human-level intelligences. And then Radigan was a rat, and didn't he have little, he had little frog minions 
with the mice minions. So are the frogs also, or maybe they're just French. Maybe the frogs are supposed to be French guys. I thought they were lizards. I thought they were frogs. Maybe they were lizards. But they're clearly human-level intelligence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're But not... also there's racism. Yes. Because he's definitely a rat trying to pass as a mouse because it's clear that if they find out he's a rat, they're going. Yeah, they're going right. to, uh, you know, be looked down on him and put him out of their mouse society. I mean, it is Victorian. I guess. Well, I guess it's Mousatorian, Mousatorian England. So, um, yeah, I guess racism would be prevalent. Makes sense to me. But also the bats are following the. Well, the bats are just rats with wings, so they also follow the mice, the, the mice hierarchy, I suppose. Yeah, but what about the frog lizard people? Mm. And and it's, I mean, we only saw a very small portion of the populace. Maybe it's just very segregated, and um, Queen the Queen. Let's call her Mousatoria. Queen Mousatoria is that is her name. Yeah, the 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 benevolent Queen Mousatoria um, does. Who rule has over been everyone. ruling? Who has been ruling for sixty years? Sixty years she's been, which ruling. is not a mouse lifespan. Well, I mean, that's fair too. It's a cartoon. <laughs> Maybe it's Mickey, really like dog years, maybe 60 years. Mickey has maybe been around like, for 90 years. Mice don't live to 90, so. Maybe a year to them is like three weeks. We don't, I don't know. I feel like the further we get into this, the more the plot unravels. And it was so tight, what with the talking, talking mice and all. Yeah. The, you know, Radigan's plan is I'm going to build a robot that will take over as queen yeah. Make me her consort and then yeah. basically let me do whatever I want and I will rule as prince regent in her stead and the robot will just be like, do whatever he says. That three profit sounds good to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not it. necessarily a bad plan. And it almost succeeds. I guess maybe they don't have like a, a mouse parliament or a mouse prime minister yeah at the time of victorian england this was not how british politics worked yeah i mean the queen victoria was much like queen elizabeth ii a figurehead i I I don't i don't i don't know i i really feel like there should be a treatise on mouse politics at this point that we could turn to i just don't know where we'd find it yeah I I really I really feel like like we should be told <laughs> more about the ins and outs. To be fair, there are society. eight books and we haven't read them all. This yeah. could be our fault. This could be our fault. I I agree. Uh, For all we know, there is a Dune-esque Frank Herbert appendix explaining all of this at the end of book three. We don't know. Yeah. So there is one person we forgot to mention in our cast list. And I want to talk about him before we get to Radigan's big song. Okay. Because the music of this movie 
and the other two songs in this movie were written by Henry Mancini. That is true. Yes. Because when you think uh, big hit music in the 1980s, you think Baby Elephant Walk. Well, come on. Come on. Come the actual F on here. You are you are talking about the man who gave us the Pink Panther theme. The, the, you know, Moon River. Moon River. Wider than a mile. I'm crying. <laughs> My aching hinder baby elephant walk. But let's get to the big song, the big villain song, the world's greatest criminal mind. Probably one of the greatest villain songs in Disney history. And you get a lot of backstory in the song about all of his crimes, the Big Ben caper and all that stuff. And they mention that he drowned orphans and all that stuff. The the thing is, is that you want to talk about stuff that's maybe not appropriate for a kid's movie or at least wouldn't be put in a kid's movie today. You know, th- they start off really um, vague. Big Ben caper, the Tower Bridge job. And you're like, okay, you know, he he robbed things and, you know, whatever. And then they were like, you know, you drowned widows and orphans. Like, now he's just a straight-up m- murderer. Like, a multiple murderers. But there was a deleted lyric that was even worse. Go Go for it. So apparently there was a, a deleted lyric about the Tower Bridge job where it says that uh, Radigan had thrown a bunch of mice into the Thames and then any that attempted to surface, he shot. A little too much for Disney. A <laughs> little much for Disney, yeah. Yeah, they didn't want to have to do any Aladdin-esque, you know, cuts and reissues. Uh, but, but then we get what is one of the more terrifying scenes in a disney film around this time honestly so we yeah poor bartholomew so throughout this entire scene bartholomew is just getting drunk as he can get he is just chugging this wine out of a fountain as everyone is singing and they sing the song dear radigan you're the tops and that's that to radigan the world's greatest rat and that just hits Radigan off. I am not a rat. I am a mouse. And throws him into the alley behind his little headquarters and rings his little bell, get, bringing out uh, Felicia, the cat. And um, yeah, you know what cats do to mice? I mean, they do those to rats, too. I don't know how Radigan tamed her, but good on him. Uh, well, because he's Moriarty. I mean, this is true. And. You know, dogs and mice are not friends. And, you know, Basil has said that he's tamed 
and trained several dogs. So it's su- supposed to be, uh, you know, the parallel there. But the way that this scene is set up is downright terrifying. Yeah, it's really, it's really kind of graphic for a, a kid. It's all shown in shadow because you see Bartholomew getting lifted up by Felicia, thrown in her mouth, and then swallowed. You never see it outside of the of those shadows. And then all of the other uh, hired goons that he has just, you know, mourn their their partner Bartholomew's passing. Not even enough time to grieve before Redding says, oh, yeah, keep singing. I want you to, you know, keep singing my song or I'll stick my cat on you, too. Yeah. And, and the fact that it is I mean, this is filmed like a horror movie. You know, it's it's filmed like a slasher movie, you know, with the murderer kind of slowly stalking up behind him and lifting as he continues to sing the praises of the guy who is murdering him. Yep. I mean, this is a really messed up scene. I'm not sure you'd put this in like, you know, uh, a film for adults. <laughs> like. <laughs> and it's in a children's film. I kind of love how messed up this is. This is why our generation is weird. Yeah. You know that, right? Probably. <laughs> but uh But like I said, they don't even get time to mourn their 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 comrade because Radigan forces them to finish the song. Yeah. And may they have learned a good lesson about moderation in drink. Well, yeah, it is kind of a bizarre Saw-esque moral <laughs> lesson. <laughs> um, the um, so the the interesting thing though is that we do get all the traditional hallmarks of Sherlock Holmes when we first meet. Uh, Basil, when Olivia comes to him, mm-hmm. uh, he is the traditional Richard. <laughs> he is your traditional bag of Richards when he meets Olivia. I, I do like that. Our first look at Basil is him in a in a in a disguise. Yeah. He comes in in the disguise. He takes off the mask. He takes off the fat suit and everything. And then we get him in his traditional Sherlock Holmes kind of smoking jacket and, you know. Doing his, you know, I'll, I'll get to you in a minute. I, I, I need to do my experiment. And uh, definitely, mm, uh, I've seen various incarnations of Sherlock Holmes. Most of them have this very same mentality because that's the way he has used uh, very I, I, this is probably going to get me in trouble with somebody very Cumberbatchian in his in this version of it um yeah a little bit which is odd because this predates it by many 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 years but, uh, that's what I'm, I'm going to get um, in trouble for a, it a lot of people have played Sherlock Holmes as the aloof genius who is bad with people which is nominally canonical though i would argue that he was extremely chivalrous so he probably wouldn't have dismissed a child like that 
um, if he genuinely thought there was a problem. So that's not generally how Sherlock Holmes in the canon treats clients. Um, so, But it uh, is interesting how early it is in the modern conception, at least on film, like this, like you said, you know, Tuesday thinks of it as Cumberbatchian, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of people watching it now, post Cumberbatch, yes, would think of it in that way. Um, and when I watched it, I kind of went, it's amazing how close the portrayal of this animated mouse is to that portrayal but it predates it. Um, you think you think old Benedict had seen this at some point? Well, I mean, he is not that old, much older than us, honestly. You know. The interesting thing is that um, so many people get that reading from Sherlock, even though, as Heather points out, it's not entirely <clears throat> canonical. That, you know, kind of a crying orphan child sort of thing would appear in his house and he would just be like, I don't care about you. I am completely, you know? Yeah. But um, but Basil doesn't know he's an, she's an orphan yet. She just says, well, go ask your mother where your father is. I don't have a mother. <laughs> then he kind of, he starts to, oh, okay, I read this situation wrong. <laughs> And Sherlock Holmes is pretty much only after Dracula is the most dramatized character in in literary history. So there's there is an entire backlog of of Sherlock Holmes drama that brings us to this point in in the in the popular consensus of what his his personality is. And it would take an entire podcast to go over that. But it's all been that that's been done and done and done by many Sherlockians over the years. But they, yeah, there's a very straight line between the plays to the silent films to the the talkies to you know Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce and all these other characters as to why that is the conception that we have now, which is very interesting to people like me. But I'm not. I don't know if you guys would find that interesting or not. But I I find it interesting that uh, this little children's book uh, animated series, I mean, uh, animated film fits so well into all of those portrayals. You know, this isn't Sherlock Holmes, and yet it's so obviously Sherlock Holmes that you could fit it into you know, people who study Sherlock Holmes for a living immediately recognize all this, all this stuff. I find that so fascinating. Um, but I like that they take away the idea that Watson is the, um, the Watson stand-in, that is Dawson, uh, is the roommate here and is just a random man who accidentally gets swept up in this mystery. He wasn't looking for Basil in this film. He accidentally runs across Olivia, sees a little lost girl. She says she's trying to find Basil. He takes her to Basil's apartment. 
And Basil just goes, and you're coming along too, Doctor. And thus we have adventure. Um, I like the way they change that. It puts a, a neat spin on it for me, and, and I like that. Um, there's a lot of um, cute little things about how they track down the exact plot. Um, you know, uh, Basil playing around with his chemistry sets and his microscopes and things like that uh, that are very Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, even the violin. Even the violin. Yes. Not the um, drug use, though. They took that out. Uh, yeah. Uh, although he does smoke a pipe, which he does smoke a pipe. Find if they did this movie today. This is still a Disney movie. Yeah. To be fair, it was te- television and it was movies that um popularized the pipe for Sherlock Holmes and the Deerstalker. None of that's canon either. Well, it canonically he does smoke a pipe, but not as much as people think he. The interesting thing uh, is that I like that he has, that he borrows Sherlock Holmes' dog. Yes. I like that plot point, that that's how Toby enters the picture, that Toby is actually Sherlock's dog from upstairs. And that, and here's the thing, if Sherlock is the world's, you know, greatest detective who ever lived... What what does he think happens to his dog, and has he figured out that there are sentient mice living below him <laughs> who take his dog on random adventures to help the Mice Queen? Like, does he know that the Mice Queen exists? Has he, like, made... Does he know Basil exists? Does he... Has he made, like, a... Like, a pact with Basil? Like... Well, I like we, to think no. Whatever when, Toby when is missing... Heard, when they first go to get Toby, they make sure to hide from Sherlock, that, no, that Sherlock doesn't see them. Yes. So Sherlock and Watson, they don't know what's going on. I mean, we're in the, for for the purposes of Sherlock, he's chasing down the redheaded league. Yeah, I, I like to think that whenever he doesn't have Toby, um, he just assumes that Mrs. Hudson is walking him. Because you know Sherlock doesn't walk his own dog. Well, of course not. That would be mundane. Yeah, so no, Mrs. Hudson has got Toby out for, I mean, to be fair, in the stories, he only borrows Toby from somebody. He doesn't have his own dog. But I think it's adorable that they made him his dog in this in this movie. But I, I just find it, like, for the purposes of this story, is Sherlock the greatest or is Basil the greatest? Oh, good because question. one of those has to be true. Either Sherlock has figured out sentient mice exist, which makes Sherlock the greatest detective, or Basil has been able to keep the existence of sentient mice from Sherlock, which makes Basil the greatest. Hmm. I don't know, because in canon, the, uh, Sherlock, you know, only knows what he needs to know. So does he, if he needed to know about the mice to figure out a crime. I'm sure he would figure it out, but otherwise I don't think he would care enough to look into. So really Moriarty would have to figure out that the mice exist and then use them in some sort of caper, which then Sherlock would have to thwart and for Sherlock to care enough to figure out about the mousatorian 
Empire. That is a good theory. I like your theory. Yeah. We have the scene uh, where they go to the rat trap, this sailor's tavern, to find a fidget. And they see uh, the uh, far too sexual (laughs) song. Mm -hmm. Um, Dawson is dumb enough to drink the beer in one gulp that has been poisoned. And he does it in the amount of time that Basil says... I believe this beer has been poisoned. Oh, you've already drank the beer. He's an army man. He knows how to drink. Yeah, I mean, but you're in the middle of a room full of enemy combatants, basically. And And somebody just 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 said, here a beer is on the house. After you just mentioned their boss's name. Come on, Dawson. Okay, this is his first this is his first case, okay? He's learning the ropes. This was a good learning experience for Dawson. <laughs> and we've all learned a good moral about not <laughs> drinking. Right? You're either gonna get tricked and drugged or you're gonna get thrown to a cat. It's don't drink. Uh, Children, don't drink. Yeah. Can we Thanks, talk Disney. about can we talk about this little burlesque? musical number because she comes out miss kitty mouse dressed in very modestly and singing yeah, about fun in the beginning yeah she starts singing about a we're all you know times are hard and it's made us stronger and all we have you know stuff like that get cozy drink your beer we're we're all in this together and then andrew sisters could have sang that and then she just comes out Ripping her her skirt off with this showgirl outfit, and her voice goes from very very motherly and and and, and nurturing to very lustful in a Disney movie. And then she talks about how she wants to do all of the things, and she wants to do all the things to you. Literally, her 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 rear end and her tail. This this is a Disney movie. Yeah, for me that was the moment where I was like, oh, we may have gone too far. Saying that there is nothing she won't do to make you happy. This song has no reason to be in the movie. No, it was shoehorned in. <clears throat> it has nothing to do with the plot. This character does not exist in any other scene. That There's no, like, at first you're like, oh, maybe this is going to be Dawson's love interest or something. Like, nope. nope. She never comes back. We never see her again. No point to this. She's not a damsel in distress. She's that. Nope. She comes out. She sings this song. They leave the bar. This never exists again. Michael Eisner wanted his song and he got it. They they see Fidget come in. They follow Fidget out. Fidget leads them back. They see Olivia trapped in a bottle. They're like, oh my goodness, let's save Olivia. And then this is the greatest moment in the entire movie to me. The party of welcome basil you have fallen into our trap yes were they like the you know the ticker tape and the confetti and the big banner there's like welcome basil 
<laughs> I love this. I love that Radigan was like, let's leave them a clue that will lead them to the thing. And then he's like, you're 15 minutes late. What, did you have trouble with your chemistry set? That I love everything about this ending from the, from the party to the, I thought of a million ways to kill you. I couldn't choose. I'm using all of them. Yeah, his Rube Goldberg machine of I couldn't figure out how to kill you, so I'm going to kill you all of the ways. Which is just chef's kiss evil. Like, yeah. that's a villain right there. And I'm going to do it to music, which I wrote and recorded just for you. And I'm going to take a picture as you die. Yeah, I, I scored this. I'm going to I'm going to record it. Let, let's do this thing. Places, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but he always makes the villain mistake. Mistake of walking leaves. off. Yeah. He leaves. Yeah. No, you stay there until they are goo. But he yeah. has he has the Queen's party to crash. Yeah, I don't he's gotta, care. He's got to crash the Jubilee. This will take five. How long is that song? Like three minutes, 42 seconds. You stay there. For but that is it's a three minute rock song. He could get through it. <laughs> like that's a full size record beginning to end of that one song. <laughs> that's fair. He wrote in a God in Vida in order to get this house killed. And I'm going to frame this photo. It breaks Basil, though. That's true. Basil's like, how could I fall for such an obvious trap? And it's the queen's gonna die. Everything is everything's done. And it, we lost. And he just gets can't get out of this depression. That's what Dawson's for. Yeah. Dawson's there to knock some sense into. That's what Watson was for. To be that they, shining beacon. I love that they do my other favorite trope about geniuses in film. Which are always written by people who are, like, decidedly not people who have this brain, the way the brain works. Which is, they have them mutter random smart people jargon. Yes. So, like, what's... The math quickly in my head that has nothing to do with anything that's going around me, but it sounds smart. Yeah, I'm going to say, you know, divided by the square root of the cosine of the, you know, history of, you know, the Battle of Waterloo and the, you know, it's just random things that people think smart people think about. Yes. I do love how they animate Basil doing that. First you get, like, this evil genius face, like, yeah, we'll set it off right now. And then he just goes looking around, like, I just love how that how that whole thing is animated, especially Basil. Yeah, it's it's good animation, and it's you know, but I it just I love that trope because it it tells me that the writer hasn't actually thought about how this will work. It's just you know you know that in the script it just says Basil does something smart here. We'll figure it out later. (laughs) But it's a trope for a reason. We knew what they were trying to get a point. The the point they were trying to get across. Yeah. Um, But I just, I always love the way people's minds work. So I'm like, you know, if you're actually that kind of person, that's not, 
that's not how that works, you know. You know, he springs the trap, he uses it against him, and I actually do like the way the whole thing resolves of, like, the mouse trap catching the ball and, you know, moving the gun, which shoots the thing, which makes the anvil break the restraints and, you know, makes Olivia fly up in the air and... I just love the ending with him catching Olivia and going, smile, everyone, and posing for the camera. Uh, like, he fixes his hat just before. Like, he just, it's so perfect to me. This is my favorite part in the movie. When everything is coming together, he fixes his hat and then grabs Olivia and says, smile. It's so perfect. And I and- love how Basil has his normal, like, coat and everything underneath his sailor costume but that Dawson is still in the poorly fitting costume because he didn't think ahead well yeah but he also had to wear a midriff shirt I mean he couldn't put anything under that under that midriff shirt well I love that Basil thought about like well I am gonna need some eye candy on my arm right as I'm walking into the sailor bar you know (laughs) like flash a little tum tum there Dawson yeah um, so I, I, I do love that moment because it's Basil coming back to himself and, and being like, you know, and I think that's the quintessential Sherlockian moment, too. Like when, yeah, you when he figures Sherlock, something out and then just does it, yes. It's that, it's that moment when everything works out for Sherlock and everybody just stands around and goes, ooh, you know, <laughs> it's like, that's the moment where you are perfectly Sherlock, you know? So, good for Basil. Um, But then I like them riding Toby to the rescue as well. Um, And Toby's ear turning into the staircase is one of my favorite visual gags in the whole movie. (laughs) (laughs) Where they're like, Toby, we have to go save the queen. And Toby's like, and then his ear turns into a staircase yes and we get uh while while he technically Sherlock never said elementary in any of the books we do get the game's afoot this is true yeah um but I I do I do love how silly that moment is and then like why is that in there who was like and then the dog's ear turns into a staircase because I hope they got the big Disney bonus for the year but uh, yeah, so we get the we get the thing, and I love the uh, that they're about to feed the real queen, Mousatoria to Felicia. That Fidget is is dragging the real queen, but he's having trouble because she's a bit girthy. Mm-hmm. See, thick thighs save lives. It's true. <laughs> it's true. I save lives, gals. Come on. But um, I I love that they that they pull that Basil pulls the queen back and it's Fidget uh, that goes over. Poor Fidget. He's like, no, don't eat me. <laughs> Misunderstood. Yeah. But my my favorite thing is the end of Felicia. Poor thing. When they have Toby 
chasing Felicia and then she jumps up on the wall and she does that little like, ha ha, can't get me, you dumb little basset hound. And then she jumps over the wall and you just like her fur being shredded and coming up over the wall and then it pulls back and it's like royal guard dogs. She did. Yeah. <laughs> she did. She may not be dead, but she is in a world of hurt. She lost about four or five of her own lives in there. In that, in yeah. That skirmish. It she wasn't her fault. Again. Poor kitty. But I like the I like the ending uh, of uh, of Radigan's plan as well. When Basil sneaks in and takes over the the robot. You know they free uh, Flavisham. And Basil takes over the robot and starts calling out Radigan in front of the crowd. You know, you're a no good villain and, you know, uh, you're nothing but a big giant sewer rat. Yeah. <laughs> as the as the robot falls apart and reveals itself as a robot, which is also a really good animated scene. And then uh, one of my personal favorite uh, moments is when the uh, the proletariat revolts. <laughs> and I was like, yes, take down the monarchy. <laughs> because everybody just starts, you know, turning on him and uh, taking Radigan and the bits of the robot queen and... Yeah. Uh, trying to take it down. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to have taken down the monarchy in general. Oh, well. No, no. <sighs> They'll have that. Uh, but, you know, sadly, Fidget is able to get the, uh, the blimp over and uh, snatch Olivia once again. Poor child. And Radigan escapes but basil and flavisham are able to create their own little you know balloon blimp out of balloon yeah there's already life-size balloons outside the castle meaning that there was already a party going on for the real queen at the well, same it's time the jubilee. 1897 was actually victoria's jubilee so yeah it's the it's the 60th Jubilee of, of Queen Victoria, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, they, whenever the the um, human queen dies, they just kill whatever queen mouses the queen and install another one so that we can have parody. <laughs> or, or the other way around, which is creepier. That would be horrible. <laughs> that mouse died. Sorry, Victoria. <laughs> But I do love they have these balloons covered by the Union Jacks tied around a cigar box. Yes. Yeah. Um, but they end up, of course, over Parliament at Elizabeth Tower. Uh, well, what is now Elizabeth Tower? It wasn't named it when the movie was made. It's getting close to 10 p.m. Oh, no. Uh, and this is our Reichenbach. Yes. So <laughs> they have the big uh, fight. They go into the works of the clock. They get they crash headfirst into Big Ben. 
they do not. They crash headfirst into the clock. Um, but ah, nicely mm. done. <laughs> I am technically correct, which is the best. The best of form of correct. <laughs> yeah. And like um, I said, this big CGI clockwork innards look amazing. They, they really do. They really do. That the the fight scene here is glorious, and there's not a lot of dialogue. It is mostly just fight scene. And no music either. Not yeah, no no real music. Just it the is, sound of the clock. It is really interesting because Radigan, uh, just before the crash, he does. We 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 skipped over this, but just before the crash, uh, he does his final kind of villain move, which is they need to lighten the load. And Fidget is about to toss Olivia over. And Radigan says, oh, we need to lighten the load and tosses Fidget over. Fidget has a broken wing, so he can't fly. Down into the Thames he goes. Yeah. We don't know if he can swim, but oh well. Wouldn't it have been smarter just to throw Olivia than they would have gone after Olivia and they could have both gotten away? I mean, yeah, but then we wouldn't have gotten the final. I mean, the movie needed to happen, so. Yeah, it's true. Basil is able to save Olivia from the, the gears and get her back to her father. While, but, while tying Radigan's own uh, very flashy cape into the gears itself. Yeah, I'm still pro-cape, but no. you do have to worry about those things. I'm, I'm also pro cape. I'm yeah. not saying it's not without danger, but I am still pro cape. Um, and I just love that this is like the moment where Radigan completely drops the posh, the poshness, rips the suit off, and goes full rat. Yeah, with the claws and everything. Yeah. And he starts he starts slashing at Basil and does some damage. I mean, it's nice that in the end he accepted himself for what he was. <laughs> yeah. But still, he was evil. Yeah. But uh, it finally hits 10 o'clock, and you know what that means. Big Ben time. <laughs> I do like that Basil took the opportunity to swipe the bell off of Radigan to say, oh, yeah, just forget what time it is. Yeah. And... Uh, um, I don't know. I don't know if rats wear watches, but the the instinct of Radigan looking at his wrist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even if I don't have a watch on, I still do that in, instinctively because I wore a watch for so long. And sometimes I still do. I do have a smartwatch, but even when I'm not wearing it, I still do that. I don't. If somebody asks me what time it is, I instinctively look to my phone. Wow. And and one time I was at trivia with um some friends and. Uh, you can't use your phone at trivia. And so one of the guys there was like, hey, Heather, do you know what time it is? And I said, no, and I can't look at my phone, so there's no way for us to know. His mom had come with us that night, and he was like, oh, okay. And his mom goes, or you could check a watch. And we were both like, oh, hey, yeah, watches do exist. But was anybody wearing one at the table? Mom was, but uh, oh, okay. neither, well, neither Stephen nor I were wearing a watch. So. <laughs> We've had that trouble before at at trivia <laughs> myself, where like yeah. everybody at the table was like, nobody's wearing a watch, and we can't look at our phones, so we no. have absolutely no idea what time it is. 
Who knows? I feel you. Um, Nobody knows. But yeah, so Big Ben does end up being the cause of Radigan's death. And as every Disney villain knows, it's not the fall that'll kill you. It's the sudden stop at the end, which we don't ever get to see because that's why they choose falling as a Disney villain death. But it's also because Reichenbach. I mean, this is the the Sherlock death. Sherlock survived the Reichenbach fall, so possibly Radigan did. Well, well, yeah, this, but this, in this version, Sherlock has a propeller that he can bicycle up. <laughs> yeah, Sherlock has a helicopter for this wrecking box. Yeah, but I mean, in the in the canon, he just falls right over the cliff and he comes back three years later, like surprise. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying, if they want to do a sequel, it's open. I don't know if they will ever do a Great Mouse Detective sequel. Like like we said, there are many many books. Yeah. And I don't know if any of them, I mean, like you said that, uh, Heather, that you don't know if this was actually a story for many of them. Yeah. Um, so they don't necessarily have to use the story for any of the books. So if they wanted to bring Radigan back, they could. Of course, Vincent Price is gone and maybe let that be, I would say. I, I'm not I, sure if I'm interested in Radigan without Vincent Price. I had heard years and years ago that there was a plan for a direct-to-video Great Mouth Detective sequel, but that never happened. I heard that, too, and just petered out. Um, If they were going to do it, I think they would have greenlit it during the, you know, right after BBC Sherlock when everything Sherlock was being greenlit. I I would love an adaptation of The Woman. See how that would have gone. Uh, I mean, they couldn't do much worse than BBC Sherlock did with her, so okay. Yeah. But also, I mean, I I know furries are big, and we've talked before about how we love our furry fans, but do we really need a furry version of the woman? (laughs) Considering that we, again, we had a full burlesque show in this movie. Why not? But the point of the woman was not, I mean, again, BBC Sherlock looking at you. The point of the woman was not a burlesque show. No, it was intelligence and poise. Yeah, so I don't know um, if if you want to be like, you know, a sapiosexual furry. I'm okay with that. But if you want to be BBC Sherlock furry, maybe don't. (laughs) This is a conversation I did not expect to have today. Yeah, you're telling me. (laughs) I mean, also, uh, Olivia was a much different character before they changed her to a kid. Apparently, Olivia was supposed to be a much older character and be a love interest for Dawson. Yeah. Good choice again, Disney. But, you know, the thing I liked about this movie and kind of the thing that attracts a lot of people to Sherlock, again, looking at you, BBC Sherlock, which, okay, I'm saying that like I don't like BBC Sherlock because I I like BBC Sherlock. But, you know, 
sometimes it's fine for there not to be romance at the center of a story. Other stories exist. Um, I liked that there wasn't a romance angle in this movie. Me too. It's okay to show kids a story that doesn't end with, and, and everybody has to find a romantic partner. You no, know, you in, in the end, it was Basil. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, in the end, it's Basil solves a mystery. A little girl gets her father back. All is right in the kingdom. And Dawson makes a new friend and finds adventure. And they move in together and are best friends and solve mysteries. They but honestly the, don't even say that they move in together, do they? He just no, says, no, I but we know that they do because they're best friends and they solve mysteries. <laughs> but <laughs> I want to know if Dr. Dawson wrote stories about Basil. I assure you that he did. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the kind of uh, traditional Sherlock stuff that they didn't wrap up at the end. We don't know that they moved in together. We don't know that Dawson started writing stories about it, you know, all that kind of stuff. But. Um, I like that they didn't kind of go in some of the traditional ways and maybe it was because they shortened down the production time and all that kind of stuff, but it's fine to leave that out of kids. Like you don't always have to, you know, what's the biggest Disney animated thing? It's, it's freaking frozen. And the main character in that is kind of a possibly asexual woman who doesn't give a crap about finding a man. She just goes around freezing things because it's pretty. And good for her. Yeah, good for her. So, like, it's, it's fine to have other stories. It's also fine to have romances. I'm okay with there being stories about romances. But, like, variety, you know? Mm-hmm. It's okay. I just feel bad that we never got more of this because I would love to see what they come up with more more adventure. Maybe not necessarily adaptations of home stories, but just whatever they could. Maybe original stories that they could do with these characters. But you know what? I'm a, I'm down for adaptations of home stories. Why couldn't this be a Disney Plus series? I'm all for that. But knowing today, it would probably be a CG series. I don't know if these, if these characters would translate into CG. Yeah, they'd be CG and they'd be like simplified an- animation, so they are all bubbly and yeah. Nah. It's good that we just have it in its perfect form as is. Or or the uh, live action adaptation. Oh no, let's not do that. Realistic Basil of Baker Street, Lion King style. <laughs> no, let's not do that. I'm having nightmares already. Waking nightmares in front of my eyeballs. Maurice LaMarche oh. as Professor Radigan doing a Vincent Price impression. No, I want to see I want to see uh, Maurice LaMarche as Dawson. And I want to see I I know it's a weird choice, but I actually would do uh I I know it's so so weird, but I I would uh I don't know. Who would I do? Who would I, who would you do as Basil? Basil. You know Disney's, you know Disney's going to have a celebrity doing it. Yeah. See, and my thing is, whenever somebody asks me, like, who would you cast as Sherlock? Sherlock Holmes should always, 
in my opinion, like Superman, be cast as an unknown actor so that you can kind of overlay your knowledge of the character onto that person rather than the at your knowledge of the actor onto the character. So, but uh, whenever anybody asks me who should be who should do a voice acting job, it's always a voice actor. Well, that's fair. I'm not like a stunt casty person. We talk about this a lot on the show. Like, I'm not like, you know, what big A-list movie star do you want voicing somebody in an animated series? I'm always like, you know, what person who always does background voices in animated series would you like to cast in this role? Because they actually know how to voice act. You know. Yeah, that was actually my problem with the the new Masters of the Universe on Netflix. The the voice actors were too big. Like I just kept hearing the actors and not the characters. Yeah, I I'm a, I'm very much a let voice actors be voice actors. That's why I loved like, you know, they did the Loki series and they got Tara Strong to do the part that required a voice actor. Thank you, Tara Strong is a voice actor. That's what she does for a living. Thank you for casting her in the part that required a voice actor. Hence my mentioning Maurice LaMarche. Yeah. He can do, he can do, a, he can do a great Vincent Price impression. He yeah. did it on the, one of the recent Scooby-Doo movies where he's yeah, voicing. So he can do Radigan. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I just like um, that. Although I would cast Jeffrey Combs as Radigan because I would cast Jeffrey Combs as everything. I That's want true. like a Loki series, but just every every character is just Jeffrey Combs. I don't even care what the character is. I just want different characters that have nothing to do with each other, but just everything is played by Jeffrey Combs. I love that you're. I appreciate that your love of Jeffrey Combs has survived all the way from when I first met you back in college to today. You are nothing if not loyal, Kiki. Yeah, I am loyal to a fault. I am I am the, the person who's just like, who do you think should be cast as the romantic lead in this, like, blockbuster film? Have you thought about Jeffrey Combs? <laughs> Jeffrey Combs can should, do it. Who do you think should play a walk-on role in this, like, five-second part in a TV series? Have you thought about Jeffrey Combs? Like, that's going <laughs> to be my you, answer to everything. Who do you think should play Queen Victoria in A Story of Her Life? Well, Jeffrey Combs sure has the range. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody actually sent me a meme that was just um, a cereal box that said, oops, all Jeffrey Combs. And it was just every <laughs> character Jeffrey Combs has ever played. Oh, there you <laughs> go. Oats over Crunch Berries. <laughs> and it's one of my favorite things ever. It, like, lives on my computer. So, yeah, so, that's my that's my answer to who would you cast in anything. I just want a whole TV series as Jeffrey Coleman playing every part. Fair enough. Fair so enough. let's let's wrap this up. Uh, does the Great Mouse Detective have the magic, uh, Heather? Yes, it absolutely has the magic. Kiki. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. This was so much fun to watch, especially after last week. <laughs> I'm going to agree. This movie still, this movie has the magic. This movie still holds up and still looks good for the, uh, for being at the tail end of the Xerox era. I have to tell you my story real quick of uh, how I first saw The Great Mouse Detective, because this is one of those Kiki Had a Weird Childhood stories. Go ahead. 
Um, this came out right. Uh, this came out um, for theatrical re-release. That would be 92, I believe. 92. And 92 was for our listener. Um, if if our listener has been paying attention, they may remember that I was not allowed to see um, movies in theaters until 1991. So this came out very early in my ability to go see movies in theaters. And so this was one of the first movies I ever saw in a theater. Quick side, for the 92 release, they actually changed the title of the movie again to The Adventures of the Great Mouse Detective. I do not remember that. I still remember it being marketed as The Great Mouse Detective, but there you go. Um, and this movie came out in uh, our cheap theater. Um, so you'd pay one whole dollar... And you got to see a film. So my father took me to see this film. We paid one whole dollar to get into the theater uh, each. And then for another entire dollar, you got a Coke and a bag of popcorn. Wow. I know. It was great. So I was so happy because this was maybe like the fifth movie I'd ever seen in a theater ever in my life. And we walked in and there was nobody in the movie theater. Nobody. <laughs> Empty theater. And so we were like, what is, are we, are we like really early or whatever? And we waited and we waited and the lights went down and the movie started and we were the only people in the theater. Oh, man. There was nobody in theater. And the movie started, and we were still the only people in theater. I saw this movie in every seat in the theater. (laughs) I saw this movie while doing cartwheels down the aisle in the middle of the theater. It was great. This this movie is the... um, it's not the only movie I have ever seen in an empty theater, but it was the very first, and it is one of my favorite memories because I was, uh, what, 10, 10 years old, I think, at the time, and I was so happy because I didn't know it was possible to see a movie with an entire theater to yourself, and it was so cool because I literally did. I saw this film from every seat in the house, trying to see which was the best seat in the theater and I found that seat and that became my seat. <laughs> That's adorable. So the only movie I've seen Sherlock Holmes film into a science experiment. That is the kind of nerdy kid I was and still am. Love it. The only movie I've seen by myself was um Muppets Most Wanted. My sister and I were the only people in the theater. So the entire movie, I, a huge Muppet fan, was telling my sister, not a Muppet fan, who all the minor Muppets were in the background. I Uh, respect that. And you will have to join us for a Muppet film next time we do one. I did see that you guys did Muppet Family Christmas, which is my favorite Christmas thing ever. And I'm going to listen to that podcast at Christmas. Yep, it was. uh, Why wait? (laughs) That's fair. Christmas in uh, August. 
Christmas. Well, the thing is, my family, we always watch two things at Christmas. We watch um, the Muppet Family Christmas, and we watch uh, Christmas in the Smokies, which is a Dolly Parton Christmas movie. Those are <laughs> the two Christmas things that my family are like, all right, it's time to, to sit down. It's time to start Christmas. So, Heather, as a first-time guest, you have one request. Uh, what request would you want us to talk about in a future episode? Okay. I would like you guys to do the Swiss Family Robinson from 1960. 1960? Yes. And I know it's not necessarily everybody's favorite, but I loved it when I was a kid. I still love it now, though it does have problematic elements, so be aware. But um, I think it's a fun little romp. Okay. It's on the list. Uh, we will do Swiss Family Robinson at a later date. But uh, next week on the schedule, uh, just says Kiki's birthday. Next week is your birthday, Kiki. It is. So you get to decide what we're talking about next week. I do. So what do you want us to talk about? I have chosen a movie that while the movie does not particularly have great meaning for me, is a chance to talk about an actor that has great meaning to me. We're going to talk about one of the greatest actors of our generation, the one. The only Mr. Brendan Fraser. All right, we're talking about The Mummy next week, but that's not a Disney movie. Dude, I wish we could talk about The Mummy. No, the one that's on Disney Plus happens to be George, George, George of the Jungle. Yep, next week, watch out for that tree. So, yeah, next week. George of the Jungle in two weeks, Swiss Family Robinson. Uh, Heather, is there anything you want to plug before we go? Uh, yes, actually. So I mentioned earlier that I am one of the co-founders and directors of 221BCon, which is a fan con for all things Sherlock Holmes, from the original stories to all the movies, the books, and yes, The Great Mouse Detective. Um, we have the con in April uh, every year in Atlanta. And if you are interested in coming, you can check out our website, 221BCon.com. All right. Come back next week for George of the Jungle. Join us in two weeks for the Swiss Family Robinson. And we will talk to you all then. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.